I mean, I think there's a lot that we can be doing. And frankly, we're doing none of them right now. I think what's so frustrating for me is that we've seen this all before. These are the same perpetrators and the same victims. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In 2003, a militia drawn from ethnic Arab tribes in Darfur, known as the Janjaweed, partnered with the government of Sudan in a genocidal campaign against non-Arab tribes in the region. An estimated 300,000 people were killed in the 2003-2004 Darfur genocide. In 2023, history may not be repeating itself, but it is certainly rhyming. The Janjaweed militia of 2003 was reconstituted as the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. This is a paramilitary group that is now fighting the Sudanese armed forces for control of Sudan in a civil war that broke out in April. In Darfur, which is the western region of Sudan, this civil war has taken on a brutal ethnic dimension. The RSF and aligned militias are targeting non-ethnic Arab tribes, specifically the Mazalit people. Entire villages have been burned, and there are rampant reports of sexual violence. Testimony from refugees over the border in Chad provide evidence that Mazalit civilians are being targeted on the basis of their ethnic identity. As my guest today, Cameron Hudson, explains, this is all reminiscent of the Darfur genocide 20 years ago. We kick off discussing what we know about what's happening on the ground in Darfur before having a longer conversation about how the genocidal Janjaweed militia became the Rapid Support Forces. We then explain how the RSF funds its operations and the support it is receiving from the United Arab Emirates. Ethnic cleansing is already underway in Darfur, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is warning that there is a risk of full-blown genocide. Yet, I fear this story is not getting the attention it deserves. I intend to change that. Today, Global Dispatches is launching a new reporting project we are calling Darfur Genocide Watch. 
Global Dispatches will bear witness, offer original reporting, and give you the analysis and context you need to understand this crisis as it unfolds. In future editions of Darfur Genocide Watch, you can expect reporting and analysis, including updates from my sources on the ground in Sudan and beyond. We will explain what is driving this conflict and offer solutions-focused journalism on how to stop this crisis from deteriorating further. This series will be an experiment in community-funded journalism, and we will require your support to keep it going. Part one of Darfur Genocide Watch is now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It draws on 17 years of my reporting on this topic to offer a brief history of the Darfur genocide and a discussion of the evidence we have that ethnic cleansing is underway today. I hope you will engage with this series by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're using Apple Podcasts, you can do so directly in the app. If you're listening via Spotify, you should go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches, where a premium subscription will give you access to this entire series. Finally, go to globaldispatches.org, where you can get the newsletter and audio versions of Darfur Genocide Watch. This story is vitally important and deeply resonant to me personally. I cut my teeth as a journalist covering the international response to the 2003-2004 Darfur genocide. And today, those same forces are back at it, wreaking havoc and destruction again, and in ways reminiscent of the genocide 20 years ago. I hope you'll help us shine a light on this topic. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Cameron Hudson of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So Cameron, to kick off, what do we know about attacks against civilians in Darfur that seem to be occurring at an increasing clip in recent weeks. Can you describe what's been happening on the ground? I think we're back to the point of, you know, having a full-blown war in Darfur, not dissimilar to what we saw nearly 20 years ago when the Darfur crisis came onto the international agenda for the first time. We are seeing attacks by the rapid support forces, the militia group that's fighting the SAF in Khartoum. Their stronghold has always been in Darfur. And what we are seeing now is the RSF and allied Arab militias beginning a campaign of extreme violence and even ethnic cleansing, certainly in parts of West Darfur, largely targeting Masalite communities there, but I think also a generalized violent campaign against civilians across the board. We're hearing reports of destruction of villages, seeing satellite imagery again of burning villages. We're discovering mass graves to the extent that people have access to the region, a number of mass graves of villages being entirely wiped out by these militia attacks. Obviously, there's heightened amount of sexual violence associated with this. We're seeing children targeted. We're seeing elderly targeted. And of course, we're seeing widespread looting associated with all of this violence. And I guess the last element is this sort of cleansing part of it where we're seeing now 
over 100,000 people leaving Darfur and West Darfur primarily for Chad. So a lot of the same elements that we saw, again, 20 years ago, are replicating themselves again, the same victims in many cases, and the same perpetrators. You mentioned the SAF, the SAF. This is the Sudanese Armed Forces that is the other protagonist in the Sudanese Civil War that's fighting the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces. I'd like to dive a little deeper into the ethnic element of this. You mentioned that the Masalit community is primarily the victims thus far of this incipient ethnic cleansing campaign that we are seeing. Who are the Masalit and can you describe more broadly like the ethnic dimensions of this and why it is important to understand what's driving this conflict? The Masalit are, are one of the principal tribes uh, in Darfur. They are on the western side of Darfur, and so there are many Masalit in Chad as well. Again, there's no real national boundary to tribal disbursement in this area. Interestingly, we are not seeing attacks on the fur population, for example, or some of the other African populations targeted 20 years ago when the Janjaweed were originally activated. But again, I think that we are seeing some elements of parallels here in the sense that it is Arab tribes that are committing much of the violence against these communities right now in Darfur. And the Masalit are not Arab. The RSF is the successor to the Janjaweed, which was an ethnic Arab militia that was tapped by the former government of Sudan to kind of do the dirty work on the ground, resulting in the genocide that we saw 20 years ago. What are you hearing from your contacts, your interlocutors on the ground in Darfur in terms of like who is perpetrating these assaults? And is it the RSF directly? Is it groups affiliated with the RSF? Like what's the general conflict dynamic that you're seeing in Darfur right now? Certainly it's hard to say. There's a great deal of access issues that we are facing right now in terms of getting real eyewitness accounts. And there's been very little effort, I think, internationally to document the crimes that are occurring there, certainly not like we saw 20 years ago. So there is certainly a kind of fog of war that pervades this conflict. That being said, there are some eyewitness accounts that have been taken by human rights groups on the Chadian side of the border, which confirm that some of the perpetrators are wearing RSF uniforms and so have been identified as such. But there are also many perpetrators not in uniform and who are associated with the RSF tribally. But again, we don't have right now the same kind of awareness of the perpetrators like we did 20 years ago. And I think that's primarily because 20 years ago, this was a state-directed assault on this population. It wasn't an indigenous war in Darfur. It was being directed by central government authorities in Khartoum, right? And so there was a pattern to the violence in Darfur because it was instigated in the first part by Sudan's army, by the Sudan Armed Forces, right? And it was done in conjunction with, and they directed the activities of the Janjaweed on the ground. And so there was a pattern of violence that we could map and discern in ways that 
allowed us to document more easily, understand the perpetrators more easily. And of course, the central government was making statements about what they were doing. They didn't see it as genocide. They saw it as putting down an armed rebellion. And so there was just a lot more documentation about what was going on. You're not seeing the RSF. In fact, you're seeing the RSF, frankly, deny any responsibility for what's going on. They're denying committing any kinds of rights abuses. They're denying control over Arab tribes that are committing these crimes. So it's a very different set of facts surrounding the violence. And that makes it harder, I think, to pinpoint exactly who is doing what to whom and for what motivation right now. So can you explain briefly how the RSF came to be and its leader, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hamid T. What is his and the RSF's connection to the genocide of 2003 and 4? The SAF was responding to an uprising of Darfuri rebel groups in the early 2000s. And this is the Sudanese Armed Forces. This is the Sudanese Armed Forces. And I think, you know, a lot of this going back in the history there was a North-South Civil War that was going on. And at that time, there were advanced talks going on in Naivasha, Kenya, around resolving that North-South Civil War. And it was looking like the Southerners at the time were going to gain some amount of autonomy, some amount of revenue sharing from the central government. And you know that, in part, spurred Darfuri rebel groups, which were equally disenfranchised by the central government, to start a rebellion in Darfur famously attacking a SAF base in Darfur, destroying several airplanes and killing SAF officers. This was a real blow to the army's seeming invincibility. And so they responded with a very, very heavy-handed approach to trying to eradicate this Darfur rebellion out of fear and frankness because they thought it could replicate what the Southerners had achieved in their North-South Civil War. But after a short period of time, I think the SAF realized that they were not set up, they were not made up to really be able to impose their will over such a vast area in Darfur. This is an area that doesn't have a lot of roads, where you see difficulty during the rainy season, which is going on right now, traversing these areas. You know, Darfur is the size of Texas, so it's a massive area to have to patrol, and it requires a lot of mobility and agility, something that the SAF did not have. It was made up largely of heavy weaponry, heavy artillery, heavy armored vehicles that just don't move around very easily in those conditions. And so the army then activated a kind of militia group, not unlike what they had done again in South Sudan, where they had a series of militias popularly known as the Popular Defense Forces. The Janjaweed were something akin to that, essentially an assemblage of Arab tribesmen who had already been active in that area. They were given weapons, they were given money, and they were importantly given promises of future lands and future governing possibilities. And so the military really activated them as a kind of mobile fighting force. And you saw during that time, the military and the Janjaweed really acting in concert to carry out these crimes, where the military would pick targets where they knew that there were pockets of rebel activity, they would either launch bombers to target the villages where they were hiding or launch long-range artillery. 
And then you would see the Janja would come in on horseback or camel and essentially do cleanup operations on the ground. Now that said, because they were on the ground, because the RSF or the Janjui then were doing these cleanup operations, they were really responsible for the worst kinds of violence, the rape, the looting, the burning of villages, the destroying of wells and other civilian infrastructure. That was all on, on the Janjui. As you fast forward through the war in Darfur, as the war begins to die down, as there are so many people that have either been killed already or they've been displaced, the Janjaweed is left looking back to the central government to fulfill the promises that it had made. They want their money, they want their lands, they want their autonomy and their governance. And that's not something that the Bashir regime is able to deliver on at that time. But what it can do is it can give them uniforms and it can give them a kind of a more formal role in the state security structure. And so you see the Janjaweed transform from this kind of ragtag militia to part of the national security architecture and become the rapid support forces. And they are given a number of jobs related to things like border security and the like. And so that continues for a number of years. The head of the Janjaweed during the Darfur genocide, a guy named Musa Halal, is indicted by the International Criminal Court. And so General Dagalo Hemeti assumes control of the RSF. And, you know, he's an interesting figure. A lot's been written about him and spoken about him. But what I would just point out is that he was a very entrepreneurial figure. And so coming to the head of the RSF at the time that he did, he, I think, really saw the potential for this force to be more than just a Darfur enforcement mechanism. And he used his business acumen and his political connections to hire out the RSF. And this actually suited the Bashir government perfectly well at the time, because Bashir was, of course, always worried that various elements of his security services would potentially at some point pose a threat to his personal hold on power. And so the idea of having a force that he could loan out and hire out to allied governments in the region that also got them out of the country and, and made it so that they were not a threat to his personal hold on power was a good thing for him. And so that was also a good thing for Himeti because at the time he was able to send his forces to Libya and to Yemen and to obviously become fabulously wealthy at that time, but also create his own kind of foreign relations and develop deeper ties to people like Haftar in Libya and to the leadership in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for whom he was working in Yemen. And so you see this evolution, therefore, in the kind of the 2010s of the RSF from a very ragtag militia group to a really formidable fighting force that had cut its teeth, not just in this local conflict in Sudan, but in some of the biggest wars in the region, working for some of the deepest pockets in the region. And he used that money, he used those relationships to both buy power and influence back home, buying up land, buying access to gold mines and other commercial interests, but also use that money to buy an army, to graduate from kind of Toyota technicals to more armor, heavier weapons, really creating a fighting force that now, as we see, rivals the potency of Sudan's national army. And it's in this context that 
Just today, and we're speaking Thursday, August 10th, the Wall Street Journal dropped this bombshell report demonstrating that the United Arab Emirates, which had previously hired the RSF as a kind of militia expeditionary force to pursue its interests in Yemen a few years ago, that the UAE is supplying arms to the RSF, that they're flying directly to Chad and to Darfur. And I take it this probably did not surprise you, but what's generally speaking your interpretation of this news? Well, no, it didn't surprise me. I think this is, you know, the worst kept secret, you know, going right now. And so I'm happy that the news is is out in the Wall Street Journal because it's been floating around local media and certainly local contacts have been talking to me about these weapons flows to the RSF from the UAE for a very long time now. And so I think what we are seeing here is, you know, the UAE doubling down on a relationship that it has had for more than a decade, right? And obviously making a determination that their business investments and their national security interests in Sudan are going to be better served and better guaranteed by having someone like Hemeti in power and having a group like the RSF victorious. And so, you know, it's clear that the UAE has taken a side in this. I think it's interesting to note that this support to the RSF is a direct violation of both an arms embargo, which continues to exist on Darfur that the UN imposed over a decade ago, but also newly imposed U.S. sanctions, executive order sanctions on Sudan, which are intended to target anyone inside or outside the country that is supporting the belligerents in this conflict and prolonging the war in Sudan, which these weapons are obviously attempting to do. So it'll be interesting to see how Washington responds to this. Washington and, and the UAE are obviously have a very complicated a security agenda. So whether or not they will take this up in a serious way with the UAE is yet to be seen. Also, the UAE is currently a member of the very same UN Security Council that imposed sanctions and arms embargoes in Darfur. They're you know, violating their own actions at the Security Council in ways that seem really disingenuous and, and just like deeply harmful because, again, the weapons and arms and ammo that the UAE is now applying to RSF in Darfur and across the border in Chad, as we stated at the beginning, are being used to terrorize civilians in Darfur. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back in the last sort of two months of the conflict in Sudan, you saw at one point the first supply chain coming into the RSF was through Libya and through the Haftar militia um, in Libya. Again, a relationship that Hemeti built up by lending the RSF to the war in Libya a decade ago. And now, of course, you see the same thing happening with the UAE. Interestingly, it, it seems that the Saudis are more on the sidelines here. I think the Saudis have been influenced a lot by Washington and have taken perhaps a more ambivalent view to who wins. And so they have positioned themselves along with Washington as mediators in this conflict. I don't know how far that's going to go quite frankly, but they seem to at least not be trying to put their finger on the scale in favor of the RSF. And of course, the last element of all of this uh, in terms of RSF external support is the Russians and the Wagner Group. And we've seen their support to the RSF coming from Central African Republic, where obviously the Wagner Group has a dominant security position. 
And it's worth noting that Hemeti himself was in Moscow for a two-week trip on the very day that the Ukraine war broke out. He was there seeking uh, an audience with President Putin. So, you know, he has, in growing his empire over the past decade, he has built for himself a set of very strategic relationships that now that the war in Sudan has started, he is able to call upon to come to his aid in this kind of moment of need. So you mentioned earlier that the RSF and Habedti controls vast gold mines and gold concessions in Sudan and in Darfur in particular. To what extent is the sort of smuggling or the export or the selling of that gold funneling and and fueling the RSF's military position? And I ask that because we know that Wagner in particular always seems to have an interest in mineral extraction in Africa. Right. So there's been a lot of great work done already to kind of document the business relationship that exists between various uh, leaders of the RSF and various Wagner-associated officials in Sudan. Yeah, I plugged the work of Global Witness there. Yeah, exactly. And and Reuters did a long piece, and, and there's some local Sudanese efforts that have uncovered a lot. T4ADS has done. I mean, there's been a whole host of research efforts that have documented the close and continuing relationship and the formal business ties that exist between the RSF and the Wagner Group in Sudan's gold sector. I think the thing that's perhaps most concerning is that I think you can draw a through line from the gold mines of Darfur to Dubai to Moscow. You know, we've known for a long time that Hemeti's gold mining has gone through Dubai and profits have made their way back to Moscow. And so this is, of course, a violation of our Russia sanctions that exist, right? And so not just our Sudan sanctions now. We know that Hemeti is one of the most wealthy people in Africa. I mean, if you just look, I mean, Sudan is the third largest exporter of gold on the continent. And that's just the official numbers make it the third largest. You know, much of the gold that Hemeti is exporting, and it's reported to be, you know, more than two tons annually, is not going through Khartoum. It's certainly not going through Khartoum anymore. And so I think one of the things that has made Hemeti and the RSF so dangerous is the wealth that they've been able to accumulate, you know, through the gold trade, also through the mercenary business. But I think what you've now seen too, and one of the theories, frankly, that, that I have, is that Hemeti has used his money very strategically to buy access and buy political protection. And so interestingly, one of the rumors that has been floating around for a very long time in the region, and one of the reasons why the Sudan Armed Forces has rejected the role of Kenya being a mediator in the conflict there, is because there's an allegation that Hemeti keeps a sizable amount of gold and his money in Kenyan banks, and that therefore President Ruto is benefiting and the economy is benefiting from this massive deposit that Hemeti has made. Similar accusations have been made in Ethiopia that Hemeti owns a great deal of real estate and has placed a lot of his gold holdings in Addis-based banks. And of course, the same can be said about Dubai and UAE-based banks. And so this idea that Hemeti has used his money and his holdings you know, to benefit local economies in countries that he needs either to neutralize or that he wants to make sure are not someday opponents of his. It passes the sniff test. And I think there's a lot of work being done to try to track down these money flows. 
but it's clear that he has used this kind of foreign network to create political space for himself that he's now using to continue to prosecute the war in Sudan. What can be done to perhaps prevent the RSF from continuing this campaign of destruction in Western Darfur and elsewhere in Sudan? Are there like remedial actions that the United States, the international community can take to prevent this from escalating even further, particularly like the very dangerous ethnic dimensions that we discussed earlier in this conversation? I mean, I think there's a lot that we can be doing, and frankly, we're doing none of them right now. I think what's so frustrating for me is that we've seen this all before. These are the same perpetrators and the same victims. And so we have a playbook. We know what we did 20 years ago. We know what worked then. We know what didn't work then. And so the fact that we are not employing that playbook today, I think, is a source of deep frustration for people like me who are having deja vu with this, but also obviously for the people of Darfur, right, who are re-experiencing all of the same violence. So yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, you know, I think we need to have more than just a few Security Council conversations condemning. We've seen no formal Security Council statement, no UN resolutions condemning this, no threats of any kind of intervention. I think we have to be really clear about the fact that the violence that we're seeing in Darfur and the methods of violence do look different from what's going on in Khartoum. And I've heard people argue that we just need a kind of a global end to the war in Sudan to end the violence in Darfur. And I don't think that's right. I think we need some specific remedies for what's going on in Darfur. Obviously, I think we need to be positioning ourselves on the Chadian border, trying and pushing to get relief supplies in. You know, when this violence started 20 years ago, within a matter of months, there were 150 Rwandan troops in Darfur. Now, that might not be a lot. As I said, it's a very large area, but it was at least a signal that the international community was initiating a response and was condemning what was happening. Shortly thereafter, there were 150 Nigerians deployed, and shortly after that, there were 7,000 AU forces on the ground in a force that eventually morphed into, two years later, into a UN peacekeeping operation. So, there's absolutely no conversation being had right now at the AU level, at the EGAD level, certainly not at the UN level, about putting any kind of monitors on the ground, any kind of human rights observers, any kind of troops. There's really been no serious conversation about forcing humanitarian access into the region. So there has been, I think, a real lack of creative thinking and by the way, this is not that creative because we've done all of this before, right? So it's it's actually it's actually not that creative. But I think the focus has been much more on the fighting and the violence in Khartoum and the displacement going on there and trying to kind of create an overall end to the war and a kind of a peace process that would somehow resolve the violence in Darfur. But I think the violence in Darfur is being perpetrated for different reasons. It's being perpetrated in some respects by different people and individuals for different motivations. And I think it needs its own set of remedies to try to save lives and create space and safe zones for civilians who are there. And as far as I can tell, there's been absolutely no serious conversation about how to do that or why we should be doing that. And I think that's a real failure of the international system right now. I got to say, it's somewhat unnerving to be speaking to you 20 years after I 
probably first spoke with you about this stuff. And we're having a very similar conversation with a very similar set of actors. Thank you for your analysis. Well, thanks for having me and for shining a light on what's going on there. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.